Welcome back, it's Yusuf here with episode 32 of the Propane Fitness Podcast. And today's topic is pretty close to all of our hearts, specifically down and a little bit to the left, our stomachs. If you're in disbelief, I did actually just make that joke. Johnny isn't around today, luckily, to heckle my dad humour so I can get away with it. Now, the topic is hunger and satiety, which means the feeling of fullness between meals as opposed to satiation, which is the signal that a specific meal is over. So this is the audio version of my hunger and satiety guide. It's a bit of a too long, didn't read kind of article. So if you listen to our podcast while you're commuting or training, then I did this just for you. So I keep coming back to this article as a reference. It took me a lot of time to write. And so even if you've read the post, I'm sure you'll find it a useful reminder as I did. So before we get started, if you haven't seen already, we are now offering a free ebook, which is called 22 Simple Rules for Dramatic Results. And you can get that on our website or Facebook page. And we've had some great feedback on that so far. There is also the option to sign up to exclusive content, uh, discounts, private content via our mailing list um, through the website as well. So just to warn you, this episode is pretty heavy going. So if you've just woken up and you're in the car, and you want to avoid the headache, um, bear in mind that the first two thirds of this episode goes through a lot of the theory and the neurochemical aspects of hunger and fullness. So if you just want to skip to the applications, I won't judge you, um, skip to about two thirds of the way into this episode. So let's get started. Managing hunger is the key to a successful diet and becoming incredibly lean. Appetite control is not a sexy topic and is often overlooked. At its core, it's the only thing standing between you and your nutritional targets. Getting a handle on hunger will close the gap between your target intake and your actual intake, ever more necessary in today's obesogenic environment. Walk into any newsagent and you'll notice that they have handpicked the cheapest, most calorie-dense and hyper-palatable foods, all displayed in nice colourful packaging. How kind of them. The obesity crisis is a complex function of environmental, genetic, socioeconomic, psychological predispositions, all of which can ultimately disrupt satiety cues, causing individuals to eat a calorie excess. Hunger is an unconscious drive. Willpower and gritting your teeth can only take you so far. We aren't samurais. Otherwise, telling people to eat less, move more would have solved the obesity crisis years ago. Instead, our appetite buttons are being pushed, shifting the balance towards overeating and weight gain. Forced underfeeding causes a cascade of physiological responses, such as depressed metabolic rate, increased appetite, and reduced non-exercise activity thermogenesis, NEAT, causing a return to the original, if not higher, body weight. In the US, 40% of Americans are dieting at any given time, yet 68.8% are overweight or obese. Food producers have worked hard to short-circuit our satiety mechanisms to keep us fat and hungry. A quote from John Kiefer. A hundred years ago, the average person needed to exert an incredible amount of effort to reach 300 pounds. But now that food science and the drug industry have mastered the correct signaling process for unlimited fat mass, we no longer need to pay a nickel to see the fat man or woman at the carnival sit in front of Walmart and watch as 300 plus pounders stream in by the herds. We have already got the odds stacked against us. 
Factor in that if you're reading this or listening to this, you're looking to get silly lean, where the hunger demons really start to creep out. We need a little more than the typical Weight Watchers eat from a smaller plate advice. This article is the ultimate guide to stacking the odds back in your favour, quashing hunger and drifting into single-digit body fat. Section 2. Mechanisms As much as the fitness industry loves to polarise and offer a binary cause for everything, such as carbs are the devil, insulin causes fat gain, etc., appetite control is unfortunately pretty complex. There are a number of overlapping mechanisms which influence hunger and satiety. I've categorised these as mechanical, hormonal, food choices and quirks, and behavioural factors. So number one, mechanical factors. Gastric mechanoreceptors, which are stretch receptors, respond hormonally to the physical volume of food in your gut by inducing sharper ghrelin suppression, increased rate of fat metabolism, and making you feel subjectively fuller for longer. Higher volume food substitutions are confirmed to aid long-term weight loss in subjects. A quote from a study by Cummings and Overdune, 2007, Ingested food evokes satiety in the GI tract primarily by two effects, i.e. by mechanical stimulation and the release of peptides through the chemical effects of food. However, pure mechanical stimulation such as gastric distension is insufficient to terminate ingestion but contributes to to satiety when acting in concert with pregastric and postgastric stimuli. Many of the intestinal peptides also inhibit gastric emptying, thus enhancing gastric mechanoreceptor stimulation too. Sensory. Food volume is closely related to sensory cues for the calorie density of food, known as the cephalic phase. This phase responds to the taste, smell, and texture of food, and has been a surprisingly significant effect on gastric hormone secretion and satiety. Liquid meals. A study on nasogastric feeding, which is feeding straight into the stomach, bypassing the mouth entirely, found the following. Increasing the energy content of infused food, but not the volume, did not affect satiety. Thus, when sensory cues were bypassed, the volume of liquid food infused intragastrically affected subsequent energy intake in both lean and obese women. These results suggest that gastric and postgastric mechanisms are involved in the effects of high-volume, low-energy-dense foods on satiety. Hopefully, we don't intubate ourselves to hit macros, but liquid meals bypass chewing and enter the GI tract with minimal orosensory exposure. The physiological effects of the cephalic phase are then minimized, which reduces the satiety response. Necking that 800-calorie mega-frappe latte deluxe with cream to go will set you up to eat more in the rest of the day compared to if you were to eat, say, an 800-calorie spaghetti bolognese. The combination of volume and sensory factors make liquid meals a very poor choice for maximizing satiety. The take-home point is that isocaloric substitutions with higher volume lead to a lower intake. So substituting 40 grams of jelly beans, which is 38 grams of carbohydrates, for 223 grams of boiled potato, which is also 38 grams of carbohydrates, leads to greater satiety. Isovolumetric substitution with greater calorie density leads to an increased intake, for example, 500 mils of skimmed milk compared to 500 mils of whole milk. Hormonal factors. A huge number of hormones and neurotransmitters have indirect effects on appetite. The main hormones directly involved in appetite control are ghrelin, leptin, peptide YY, 
neuropeptide Y, obestatin, orexin, insulin, cholecystokinin, and GLP-1. These interact in the following ways, and there is an image of a schematic of the ways that all of these uh, peptides interact, and it's horrifically complex. So bear in mind that all of the factors overlap. Volume, composition, and even the smell of foods produce hormonal effects that work in conjunction to induce satiety. Here's where I started to realize that I bit off more than I could chew writing this article. So the fed state. The satiety hormone leptin is released from fat cells. The more dieted you are, the lower your circulating leptin, stimulating appetite and a reduction in basal metabolic rate. Ghrelin responds to metabolic signals, triggering hunger to maintain energy homeostasis. Dieting to low levels of body fat generally elevates ghrelin and suppresses leptin. The body resists losing weight by compensating with appetite and basal metabolic rate, which is further dysregulated by food manufacturers, making dieting into an uphill struggle. Particularly in the final stages into single-digit body fat, extreme hormonal changes form metabolic adherence and mood obstacles. Sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is a chronic stressor with a negative effect on appetite control, stimulating ghrelin, increasing blood glucose and causing a transient insulin resistance. The elevated cortisol and cascade of effects worsen impulse control, cravings and dietary restraint, setting you up for overeating and metabolic syndromes in the long term. Sleep deprivation plays a pivotal role in hunger regulation. It is positively associated with circulating leptin and independent of BMI. Sleep, did I say sleep deprivation? I meant sleep duration. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? So it is inversely associated with circulating ghrelin. Meta-analyses show that BMI is generally 0.35 points lower for every additional hour of sleep. Exercise. The main conclusion is that exercise has a variable effect on appetite in both direction and magnitude, confounded by 1. The unconscious slippage of intake versus tracking, 2. Training style and intensity, and 3. Effects of post-exercise compensatory energy expenditure. It follows that homeostatic forces will maximize energy efficiency and resist exercise-induced weight loss, amounting to around 30% of the exercise-induced deficit. These compensatory mechanisms appear heterogeneous and are likely interdependent on other appetite factors. All that we can conclude is that exercise produces a mixed response based on the individual. In terms of our recommendations, we're not masochists or crossfitters at Propane Fitness. Our goal is for you to lose fat and gain muscle with the minimum effective dose of input. Occam's razor. Your training volume and cardio should already be at the minimum necessary to maintain progression, such that further reduction would further compromise your progress and is not a variable that we can play with. If you personally find that extra cardio does suppress your appetite, adding this in is an option, but factor in your limited recovery capacity. Diurnal variation, to breakfast or not to breakfast. Ghrelin and cortisol reach a peak in the morning, in line with hunger. Martin Burkan offers an interesting theory as to why high-carbohydrate breakfast makes us more hungry. The point is that circadian cortisol peak coincides with breakfast, and that this is the only point during the day that cortisol reaches a high enough level to exert an acute and pronounced effect on feeding-induced insulin secretion. What I mean here is that at the cortisol awakening response peak, 
cortisol climbs to a high enough point to agonize the glucocorticoid receptors. This changes the non-genomic interaction between cortisol and insulin action from being permissively restraining by the former, as seen at other times during the day, due to mineralocorticoid binding dominance, to a non-genomic stimulating or synergistic, if you will. Short-term exposure to cortisol powerfully augments insulin secretion, and this is the key point here. Wow, that was a mouthful. So tread carefully. Theorizing diurnal hormone variations and macronutrient interactions is potentially a rabbit hole. For our purposes, it's simpler to look at the evidence around effects of meal frequency, timing, and compositions on satiety ratings and intake. For example, if you are eating breakfast, a protein-dominant breakfast appears to reduce subsequent intake compared with a carbohydrate one. Meal frequency. Regularity is a more critical factor than a specific meal cadence for hunger control. Appetite generally compensates for meal frequency outside of the extremes, meaning hunger control is worse with two or fewer meals, or for more than six meals per day. A safe option would be three meals per day for satiety and muscle preservation. Intermittent fasting may be helpful if it fits your schedule, particularly if your fast is during a time where you're not idle and thinking about food. Anecdotally, we find intermittent fasting can have a dark side, which can be avoided when periodized. I'm sure it goes without saying now that stoking the metabolic fire is a myth, and meal frequency within a normal range has little impact on basal metabolic rate. Sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners and zero-calorie foods are a lifesaver during a diet. Human studies reject the idea that artificial sweeteners spike insulin or cause weight gain. This fear is likely a good, good example to explain the term reverse causation, i.e. fat people buy diet products compared to diet products make lean people fat. A few studies actually found an improvement in satiety and body composition and reduction in food intake in contrast to sucrose sweetened drinks, which increased calorie intake in some cases. Potential mechanisms for this are still uncertain, but it may be related to GLP-1 promotion. Habitual diet soda drinkers displayed augmented responses in reward pathways on fMRI readings, both in response to sucrose and sweetened drinks. The fMRI response for sucrose versus sweetener was identical, with habitual diet soda drinkers compared to habitual soda dr sugar soda drinkers. This indicates the potential for non-nutritive sweeteners to rewire neural reward centers, which is interesting in the context of their association with reduced calorie intake. Food properties and quirks. Key contents and physical properties of food affect satiety. Energy density and volume covered above. Macronutrients, glycemic index, flavor and perception of indulgence, and texture. Macronutrients. Unfortunately, the evidence on satiety value of individual macros is murky with no clear front runners, and it is of little relevance here unless you're a weirdo and eat single macro meals. Fiber and protein do appear to have stronger effects on satiety, but with no established dose-response relationship. This likely won't come as news to you, and if you're following the propane protocol, then you'll be getting enough of both. Alcohol. Alcohol needs a brief mention as the honorary macronutrient. Metabolism of alcohol results in an excess of NADH. Excess NADH in the cytosol favors conversion of gluconeogenic precursors pyruvate and oxaloacetate away from glucose and towards lactate and malate. 
the diversion away from nucle- gluconeogenesis can result in hypoglycemia and alcohol-induced munchies associated with drunken doner kebab consumption. Glycemic index. Interestingly, there is no clear relationship between glycemic index and satiety. A better guide is the satiety index covered later on. Flavor and texture. We appear to have flavor and texture specific cravings or specific satiety. It's possible to satisfy your sweet or salty craving and possibly even your hard, soft craving. No sniggering, please. There is a psychological benefit to flexible dieting and being able to indulge in naughty foods during your diet, both to satisfy cravings and to feel like a normal human being. However, there is a potential for overuse of sweet and salty foods to overstimulate the orosensory receptors, disrupt reward pathways, and form addictive behaviors. Particularly so with hyperpalatable foods and MSG, monosodium glutamate, which increase intake in subjects. Once you pop, you can't stop. Texture is also a factor in how satiating or palatable a food is. Compare highly viscous melt-in-your-mouth buttery steak or chocolate to celery, which would you rather have more of. White bread is porous and so is degraded more easily in the GI tract than pasta. Although organic acids and common additives such as sodium propionate lengthen gastric emptying time, increasing satiety value. This, along with the normal human being argument, are possible reasons why white bread is positively associated with dietary adherence. It's likely that dairy, grain and other foods have their quirks and individual effects on the gut that are responsible for their satiating powers. Now, satiety index. So now that we are thoroughly confused by all of the different factors affecting satiety, how do we actually determine which foods are more filling? Luckily, Holt has done the work for us and collated an index as a reference of 38 foods in 240 calorie portions based on the participants' fullness ratings at regular intervals and subsequent intake. This neatly accounts for the rate of gastric emptying and fullness over time. If the satiety index is over 100, then the satiety effect of food is less than that of white bread, and if it's over 100, then the food is more satiating than white bread. Holt's research concluded the following. There were significant differences in satiety, both within and between the six food categories. The highest satiety index score was produced by boiled potatoes at 323%, which was sevenfold higher than the lowest satiety index score of the croissant at 47. Most foods, around 76%, had a satiety index score greater than or equal to white bread. The amount of energy eaten immediately after 120 minutes correlated negatively with the mean satiety area under the curve responses, thereby supporting the subjective satiety ratings. Satiety index scores correlated positively with the serving of the foods and negatively with palatability ratings. All quite obvious stuff so far. Protein, fibre and water contents of the test foods correlated positively with satiety index scores. Conclusion, the results show that isoenergetic servings of different foods differ greatly in their satiating capacities. An interesting observation is that the potato absolutely bossed it at 323, but crisps were 91. Same food, different satiety value due to water, texture, palatability and added oil, making crisps a fat-dominant food rather than a carb-dominant one. This is why nutritional dogma 
demonizing certain foods must be taken with a pinch of salt, and why glycemic index just doesn't cut it. Eating a thousand calories of boiled potato compared to a thousand calories of crisps. One is practically a challenge, the other you could accidentally inhale while watching a film. Behavioral and emotional factors. Number one, boredom and convenience. Eating out of boredom stems from procrastination and idle hands rather than a physiological desire to eat. If you're working an office job, where the biscuits are always within reach, the mind naturally drifts towards food in dull moments. Stress and trauma. The bigger threat to appetite control, however, is emotionally fueled eating. Another quote from a study. Stress consistently increased intake of hyperpalatable foods, specifically even in the absence of hunger and lack of homeostatic need for calories. Repeated and uncontrollable stress can over time dysregulate the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which can consequently affect energy homeostasis and eating behavior. Chronic activation of the HPA axis can alter glucose metabolism, promote insulin resistance, and influence multiple appetite-related hormones and hypothalamic neuropeptides. Moreover, those under chronic stress tend to eat more under acute stress conditions and show heightened preference for and consumption of hyperpalatable, energy-dense foods, high in sugar and fat. These foods can exploit the potential for addiction in those already vulnerable. Uncontrollable stress changes eating patterns and the salience of hyperpalatable foods. Over time, this could lead to neurobiological adaptations that promote increasingly compulsive behavior. The stressed brain expresses both a strong drive to eat and an impaired capacity to inhibit eating together creating a potent formula for obesity. So the effects of stress on behavioral control and impulsivity make us susceptible to substance abuse in general. Cheap, convenient foods are a perfect default option for short-term relief. The typical cycle is stress followed by impaired restraint, impulsive eating, then self-flagellation, and then an attempt to ameliorate that negative state, and then emotional and comfort eating. Chris Pratt says, When I was fat and unhappy, the only moments of respite I got was when I was eating. Now meal times are sometimes lame, because that's the way it can be when you're eating healthily. But all the time between meals, I feel great. Feel great all the time rather than just at meal times. So with self-focused eating, food becomes a solace from discomfort. However, it adopts a different role when an individual is consciously dieting. Those exercising dietary restraint tended to lapse into higher food intake when under stress. In this case, food is related is raised to a pedestal as it is the forbidden fruit, with a greater propensity for binges. Another quote from a study, It is hypothesized that people actively trying to restrain food intake may deplete the cognitive resources necessary to deal with stresses, thereby impairing their inhibitory control which in turn increases the likelihood of overeating. Lack of control over life events may lead to desperate and ineffective attempts to control eating, such as by deprivation from a particular food followed by later binging. Emotions are complex and we all have our vulnerabilities. The key point is that they have concrete measurable effects on our neurochemistry, propensity for addiction, impulse control and ability to stay lean. It's not an insignificant factor in a successful diet. This website is predominantly read by men who are notoriously shit at seeking professional advice for emotional distress.
some form of emotional processing and stress management is critical when dieting to low levels of body fat. Ask any pre-contest bodybuilder. They are mentally and physically depleted, marshalling all of their cognitive resources towards dietary restraint. So we've gone over all of the theory there. You may have fallen asleep by this point, but this is the time to wake up because uh, we're onto the application. So hopefully it's all coming together now that appetite is really a multi-headed monster with overlapping causes. A multi-pronged approach is therefore necessary to tame it. Number one, volume. For a meal with a given macronutrient target, make substitutions to bump up the volume. Fortunately, you won't have to make your stomach baggy or get desensitized to the effect from abusing the high-volume foods. Use the satiety index as your guide. Some personal favorites are included in the article. Number two, water. While drinking more during a meal does not appear to reduce total daily intake, preparing food with more water does. For example, rice prepared with more water. Um, pick foods with higher water content and cook with more water to increase the satiety value. Number three, food choices. So cravings. Bearing flavor-specific satiety in mind, opt for and opting for lower calorie foods that satisfy the criteria. So anchovies or pickle for savory cravings. As for sweet cravings, I'm not convinced by the fMRI evidence that the normal use of artificial sweeteners would be counterproductive, and much of the other evidence supports their effectiveness. Moderate use of sugar-free foods and diet sodas would be good options to manage cravings. Additionally, try keeping some dark chocolate in your cupboard for sweet cravings. Subjects ate 17% less pizza after eating 100 grams of dark chocolate compared to milk chocolate. Maybe don't, don't mimic the experiment in that diet. 100 grams of chocolate is quite a lot. Number two, dairy. So dairy foods have a decent satiety track record. Milk amplifies the postprandial ghrelin decline, and low-fat yogurt and whey have been shown to reduce subsequent total intake by 1 to 200 calories. Our recommendation, include more dairy products in your diet and drink half a scoop of whey before each meal. We use MyProtein's True Whey, which has a wide variety of flavors and good quality control. Additionally, start the day with a creamy banana and peanut butter protein latte to take advantage of the satiating effects of the high-protein breakfast. Variety. A variety of available food increases ad libitum intake by up to a third. The diversity of stimulation may eventually develop tolerance to the reward pathways. Quote from a study, Healthy adults placed under a nutritionally adequate but monotonous diet, compared to those on an unrestricted diet, showed greater activation of hippocampus, insula, and chordate in response to the cues of foods they favoured. Repeated stimulation of the reward pathways through hyperpalatable food may lead to neurobiological adaptations that eventually increase the compulsive nature of overeating, characterized by the frequent drive to initiate eating. This mechanism is not exclusive to food, and there's a link to a TED talk about masturbation as well. Increasingly, a milk-only diet produced weight loss over 16 weeks, comparable to the most successful drug treatment in obese participants. The researchers' conclusion was that a novel but simple diet was the reason for its success. Perhaps milk as the choice of drink was also a contributor. Our recommendation, variety and palatability are inversely associated with satiety, so reduce the variety of foods and take things back to blandness. Reset your tolerance and you'll be able to enjoy treats more with less compulsion. 
meal frequency. Avoid the extremes, stick to 3-5 to five meals per day, and at convenient times for you. Experiment with meal size and macro composition, using high satiety index foods to determine the minimum calories that you need to suppress hunger sufficiently for 3-5 to five hours. Spread protein evenly, with a slight skew towards the meal with the highest calories. Anecdotally, many find backloading their carbs to be helpful. Develop a rhythm and eat your meals at roughly the same time each day. Intermittent fasting. Only if the fasting period helps you to stay productive and keep your mind off food. Do not fast if you spend the fasting period fantasizing about your next meal. The goal is to reduce the percentage of the day that you think about food. Plan meals that fit your schedule. This is why we aren't prescriptive with mealtimes. It's meaningless without knowing your personal timetable. Sleep. We have a full guide on becoming a sleep warrior, but the, the, big, uh, the, the big points are control your sleep environment, keep it dark, cool, and quiet, limit caffeine intake. Number two, you need to spend at least seven hours and 20 minutes with your eyes closed, head on the pillow, more if time allows. Number three, make yourself a morning routine list and make it so that a monkey could follow it. Become as efficient as possible with your morning tasks so that you can get as much sleep as possible. Stress. Cultivate self-compassion. Give yourself a break when you need to. Stress will derail your diet. Strive to detach your self-image from your diet and training. Training is something that you do, not something that you are. Meditate. There's more on meditation in the rest of the website, but bear in mind that meditation is a discipline. Pop spirituality and the blogosphere right to sell. Quick fix platitudes and easily digestible, hyperpalatable you could say, ideas are more profitable than diligent practice. So calibrate your expectations. 10 minutes per day isn't sufficient to access and heal the deeper reaches of your mind, just as 10 minutes per day in the gym is unlikely to be enough to make any decent progress. You get out what you put in. Supplements. Supplements should not be the first port of call. Make changes further down the Eric Helms pyramid first. Appetite suppressants. Some compounds are quite effective for appetite suppression, even some legal ones. As a rule of thumb, the potential for side effects and risk is proportional to the strength of the appetite suppression. Amphetamine-related centrally acting drugs, often used for appetite suppression, leading to a minefield of psychiatric and cardiovascular risks in the pursuit of leanness. The downside is that when you're in a deficit, catecholamines are already high. As Eric Helms pointed out in his seminar, Yohimbine is used experimentally to induce panic attacks. So, including sympathetic agonists, at a time when you're already at your most neurotic and highly strung, isn't the best idea. Our recommendation is to simply avoid on a cost-benefit basis. Other effective suppressants include 5-HTP, producing notable appetite and weight reduction, or chromium, which has weaker effects. Green tea should theoretically reduce appetite, which is in line with our experience too. Appetite stimulants. Some commonly used appetite stimulants include lime squeezed in water, supplemental digestive enzymes, and cannabis. Ghrelin mimetics, or intramuscular vitamin B12, may also be prescribed for severe clinically low appetite. So, in conclusion, hopefully this post has provided you with some food for thought and a final checklist to improve your appetite control. Number one, use the satiety index as your guide. Reduce variety. Don't abuse extreme flavors. Do abuse high volume foods. 
Increase dairy intake. Try having half a scoop of whey before each meal. Improve your sleep environment and aim for seven and a half hours. Eat around three meals per day at regular times. And intermittent fast if it suits your schedule. Stay distracted between meals. Get out of the kitchen and minimize food preparation time. And practice self-care and stress management. But hey, it's just advice. These recommendations are starting points based on the evidence, with an aim to push the odds back in your favour. There's room for experimentation, and if you feel fuller eating six meals a day, carb front-loading, carb back-loading, whatever, go for it. So, well done for making it to the end of that. That's it for this week. Don't forget to leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you love or hate this, and speak to you soon.